Well, we're uh, returning to our study this morning in the book of in the book of James. Uh, we have found our way uh, to the end of James chapter four. I, I hope that uh, today that we'll finish James chapter four. At least that's my that my that's my plan is to finish uh, the the last few verses of of uh, James four verses thirteen through. 17, we started last week and we saw, uh, we began to see that James offers three maxims which help ensure you are fulfilling the royal law, loving God and your neighbor. You must live then considering, uh, first, your eternal destination, uh, second, considering your sovereign creator, and third, considering your uh, doctrinal knowledge. And I've titled this sermon, this is part two of the ter- sermon I titled, I Know Who I'm Living For. There's actually a song by that title, which I have um, have uh, taken, uh, what's the word for that? Um, plagiarized, that's the word I'm trying to say. Uh, plagiarized that title, I Know Who I'm Living For. Let me read the passage, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning that we can be here. We thank you for the word that you've given to us. Father, we pray that we would uh, we would heed what you say, that we would listen, and that we would act upon it. Father, we thank you for your grace that allows us to obey you. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, last week, we began this section by exploring its context in the letter. As I shared last time, I, I was perplexed as I approached this passage. I, I didn't understand. I was trying to understand why James would put this here. As I studied it, I've come to realize the, then that it's, that it's the context of the letter that helps us understand James's complete points. Last week I said that the royal law, he refers to it as the, the royal law in James 2.8, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is one of the strongest echoes of Jesus' teaching as recorded in the Gospels. Uh, we saw that this teaching from Jesus in the Old Testament seems to be the undercurrent of the letter. And so we must understand James's heart regarding love for your neighbor to understand our current passage. Now I want to ensure, I want to assure that, that we understand some boundaries here. And I believe that our understanding of the, the royal law, loving your neighbor as yourself, will help us set those boundaries. Now as we learned last week, James exhorts some of his readers who are on the fence to, to stop and consider their Lord they, and their brothers and sisters in Christ before they make long-range plans to go and travel and make a profit. Does that make sense? That, that we, we, they, he's exhorting these readers, these readers who have one foot in the church and one foot in the world, to stop and consider their Lord and their brothers and sisters in Christ before they make long-range plans to make a profit, to travel and make a profit. Now, it seems that these Christian merchants, if you will allow me to call them, were involved in the business world. And they were not considering their brethren who were suffering at the, the hands of some rich landowners. These suffering brethren were in dire straits. And needed help, including clothing and food. We see that in James 2.16. 
These nominally committed Christian merchants were refused to help them and were even probably showing partiality toward the rich. And James indicts them for that in James chapter 2. He warns them in James chapter 4, verse 4, that friendship with the world, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. See, you can't have it both ways. You can't be friends with the world and be friends with God. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You must be fully committed to Christ. And feigning commitment to Christ and commitment to the world makes you an adulterer. That's what he says in James chapter 4, verse 4. He calls them adulteresses. Just as the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So as I said, I want to give some thoughts that that I think will form some boundaries to what James and Jesus are saying and what they're not saying about wealth and making the making of wealth. I want to ensure that we're not stepping too far to the left or right. I think this passage really has to do with how we think of wealth and making money and living in a world where we do business in a world. And and I, I think this passage has to do more with that than we might think at first blush. So first, I want to say that wealth, the lack of or the abundance of wealth, reveals our heart more than anything else in this world. Does that make sense? Wealth reveals our heart, whether it's the lack of wealth or the abundance of wealth, reveals our heart more than anything else in this world. Why do you think Jesus had more to say about wealth than anything else? Of 16 16 of Christ's 38 parables speak of how people should handle earthly treasure. One out of every ten verses in the gospel speaks of stewardship. That's more than heaven and hell combined. The Bible contains then 2,000 references to wealth and property, twice as many as the total references to faith and prayer. So we need to understand that wealth reveals our hearts. Number two, I want to make sure you understand that neither James nor Jesus prohibits making and saving money. Neither James nor Jesus prohibits this. Both prohibit making money for pure pleasure and power. Both prohibit hoarding of money, defined as keeping it all to yourself. But there is no prohibition against having a good job, Or saving money for a rainy day. If we diligently work, then we can generally expect to be paid well for what we do. And that's okay. There is not even any prohibition against taking a vacation and doing fun things. But here's the issue. Here's the problem. It has to do with our attitude toward our money. Our attitude toward our money is a heart issue. In James' day, some of these Christians, some of these these nominal Christians, I'll call them, could, could, could have helped their needy brethren, but they were unwilling to do so. And they were probably unwilling to do so to maintain their position in this world. The question then is, what is your heart when it comes to your possessions? Do you want to hoard, or are you willing to give to help when there is a need? Think about it. Number three, let me say also that everyone in this room fits under the category of rich compared to James's original audience. Everyone in here, none of you are lacking None of you, every one of you know that you're going to have lunch today, right? You're going to have dinner tonight. If you don't, please let me know. But 
But the truth is, is that I'm reasonably sure that everybody in here is going to have something to eat tonight. And won't have to worry about what they're going to do for the next week. It's important for you to understand this because James does not advocate socialism. And he's not advocating social justice. Socialism is the forced redistribution of of wealth. He's not advocating that. And he's not advocating social justice, which is justice in terms of the distribution of wealth. The distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges. He's not advocating those things. What he is saying is is that, that we need to show mercy. He's advocating mercy. To our needy brethren, as defined as helping when there is a need. Does that make sense? He's talking about showing mercy defined as helping when there is a need. It's the individual coming alongside someone and saying, let me help you when you you need help. See, that's the reason why James said earlier, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. These people were not showing mercy. And what James was warning them of is that if you don't show mercy, then judgment will be merciless. That's stark, right? The question then is whether you are willing to show mercy to those in genuine need. James defines those in genuine need. He defines it simply as orphans and widows. Those who who have a genuine need. He says that in, in chapter 1, verse 27. These are the truly needy in our midst. Just this past week, we had the opportunity as a church to help a disabled couple with the unpacking and, 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 unpacking, uh, and such, the uh, disabled veteran. Beloved, this is the type of mercy ministry that we need to be a part of, that we need to be doing when people genuinely need help. Some of us have the money to finance these endeavors. Some of us have the time to do them. Some have both. We need to be engaged together in unity as we pursue these endeavors in Christ. That's what James is talking about here. That's what James is talking about here. Fourth, James does not prohibit owning possessions. I know that should be obvious, but I want to make sure that we understand that. He, he even acknowledges that some may have more than others, and that's okay. But he is clear that you, you need to use your resources for those who are in need. Fifth, James expects the rich to help the truly needy among us. Matthew Henry says this, The riches we impart are the only wealth we shall always retain. Let me say that again. The riches we impart are the only wealth we shall always retain. Therefore, as a church, we should celebrate that God has placed some among us who are more able to help the needy with their wealth. We should celebrate that. I'm not saying celebrate them. I'm saying celebrate the fact that God has given more to some than others. And that they can use that wealth to help. And if you find yourself in the position of having very little, you should be thankful that God has given more to others to be able to help you. Think about that. It's a different attitude, isn't it? Sixth, James nor Jesus expects those who have more to finance those who have less, especially when those who have less refuse to work to their ability to care for themselves. Let me say that again because that was a mouthful. James nor Jesus expects those who have more to finance those who have less especially when those who have less refuse to work to their ability to care for themselves. That forced sharing is called socialism, and that's not what James is referring to here. We've already said that. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Those who have, who have more have no obligation to give to those who have less outside of a true need. I want to make sure we understand that. Outside of a true need, there's no obligation. So we must not expect those who have more to finance our every whim. It's not the way it works. Provide for yourself 
and help others if you can do so. If you're able, provide for yourself and help others. Get paid what you're owed so that you can pay what you're owed and help the brethren. And if you owe someone something, pay them. It's just that simple. That's the way it ought to work. Anybody that's confused about that, come see me. We'll talk more. Number seven, and lastly, the context of this letter should help us, should keep us from jealousy toward what others have. James does not condone jealousy toward our brethren. He condemns jealousy along with selfish ambition. That's James chapter 3, verse 16, if you want to look it up. He, he condemns those things. So if somebody has more, we should celebrate the fact that they have more. Because, that's, because God has blessed them with more. And hope that they're using it for the right reasons. To help those who are in true need. I, I don't want to overstate this. But I'm, I, I just know as I prayed through the, situation, I prayed through the, the sermon last week. And what I pray, preached last week and what I'm preaching today. I, I don't want to overstate it. But I do know that, that wealth brings to light our heart more than anything. And, and I want to make sure that y'all understand where James is coming from here. Now, last week we saw that, again, that James offers these three maxims. And we started out with uh, considering, live considering your eternal destination. James writes in verse 13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Last week we learned in verse 13 that, that there are four that there are four ways to know whether you're not considering your eternal destination. You presume power, then, over the timing of your life. You presume power over the place of your dwelling. You presume power over the length of your stay. And you presume power over the outcome of your efforts. Now, James then goes on to to remind his readers why it's ludicrous to plan to travel and make wealth without taking God's will into account. He states, yet you do not know what life will be like tomorrow. Now, there are varying opinions as to the translation of this verse or this phrase. The NIV translates translates it. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Then it stops and says, what is your life? The New King James Version translates it this way. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? Now, I think that these two translations actually best capture James's intent. James wants his listeners to think about the nature of their lives. He wants them to think about the, brev- the brevity of their li- lives, and he wants them to take that seriously. He wants them to consider how temporary we are, that we are here today and we're gone tomorrow. And even though we're temporary, even though we're here today, gone tomorrow, many of us live as if life will last forever. And we, we hear here then echoes of Proverbs 27.1, which says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And echoes of Hosea 13.3 that says, Therefore they will be like the morning cloud and like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Even though the scriptures clearly state that we are finite, here today, gone tomorrow, James's readers were planning their lives. They were planning their lives as if they had all the time in the world to do what was right. Listen to Jesus' Jesus teaching about the brevity of life in Luke 12, 18-21. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm sorry, 13-21. Turn there if you'd like. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the family with inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge and arbiter over you? Then he said to them, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has abundance does his life consist of his possessions. 
see, we see here that James is warning this man against greed. He, he tells them the truth that even when we have an abundance, our lives does not consist of those possessions. In other words, our, our possessions don't guarantee a long life, nor even or even a good life. He goes on in verse 16, and he told him a parable, saying the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began to reason, reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take ease and eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus' point is that your possessions don't guarantee a life of ease. Jesus wanted these people to understand that they must live considering their eternal destination. You never know when the end of your life will come. You never know when your soul will be required of you. No one has ever taken their possessions with them. There's a song actually called, I've Never Seen an Armored Car Following a Hearse. The chorus goes on to say, you can't take it with you when you go, and your possessions will be left here below. Uh, a Randy Travis song cap- captures Jesus' thought just a bit better. He relates the words of a dying man as the vultures gathered around his bed. He says, you never see a Brinks truck following a hearse. And you don't need a wallet when you leave this earth. On an even lighter note, I heard this joke uh, this past week, actually. There was once a man who decided to take a suitcase full of gold to heaven. So the man dragged the suitcase over and Peter opened it to see that it was filled with gold bars, bricks, and ingots. Peter said, well, all right. If God said so, I suppose you can take that in if you want. But why in the world did you go through all this trouble to bring more pavement to heaven? The point is clear, right? It's ludicrous to build up your possessions here on earth. Because you never know when your soul will be required of you. And your possessions don't matter one whit in heaven. Look at the text. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. As we established, there's a big connection back to James 1, 10 and 11 here. James reminds his readers that they're nothing but a puff of smoke that appears for a little while, then disappears. We are nothing but the steam off a a coffee cup. Here today, but gone tomorrow. All our best laid plans are left to chaos by the uncertain nature of tomorrow. It doesn't matter what your plans are. Those plans are left to chaos, considering the uncertain nature of tomorrow. And according to James, we're much better to live as if today is all we have here on earth. And that we face the eternity or the certainty of eternity with Christ or in hell. We need to come to grips with that. We need to come to grips with the finite nature of our lives. Beloved, it is that stark. Consider what I'm saying. If where you spend eternity is all that matters, you must live like it. And, or suffer the consequences for that eternity. Let's look at the second maxim. You must live according or considering your sovereign creator. Look at verse 15. Look at the text. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. James has warned them then that living a life as if we don't face eternity, he's warned them of that. Now he gives the correct view of our lives. As James has done throughout this letter, he contrasts earthly or or, uh, demonic type behavior with heavenly and godly behavior. This, This verse vividly contrasts then verse 13. It contrasts the prideful arrogance we've seen there. 
We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But we are leaving it in the hands of the God who does know. Corey Tinboom says this, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. This, atti- this attitude reflects a, the great humility that James has called for, or pleaded for in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't miss that connection. We shouldn't make light of it. The man or woman who has put their trust completely in Christ will have an attitude of complete dependence upon Him, recognizing that God alone knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46.9 says this, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Isaiah 46.10 says this, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. We are entrusting ourselves to the one who knows all things. Now, I want, to be, I want us to be careful with this phrase, if the Lord wills. Just using it as some rote saying does not show that your heart is truly engaged in God's will. You hear people say, and I, I say it as well, Lord willing. Lord willing. I say it as well. It's, I, it's, I just want to make sure that we understand that it's a heart attitude. It's not just some phrase that we throw out. God looks to the humble and the contrite of hearts. The, the New Testament is rife with examples of men and women who have truly humbled themselves to the will of God. Jesus said to pray in this way, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He modeled that prayer as he faced the cross. And it says in Matthew twenty six forty two, He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. We see the same type of submission in the lives of the apostles. The apostle Paul frequently verbalized the same attitude. In in Romans 15, he told the church at Rome that he hoped to come to them and enjoy by the will of God. In 1 Corinthians 4.19, he told the Corinthians that he would come to them soon if the Lord wills. If you look at Acts 16, we don't have time this morning. If you look at Acts 16, you see that graphically at work in the life of Paul. He, he, he was forbidden by, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. He, he, they, the, a vision appeared to him in, in 69 uh, to, to go to Macedonia. I mean, it, it was graphic in his life, the Lord's will. Now, we can't expect that God will reveal his will so graphically, but we must understand that he's no less involved in our lives. He is guiding and directing everything. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who know, who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8.28. I hope you're resting in God's sovereign leading. I hope you will come to understand that nothing happens outside of his sovereign hand. Johnny Erickson Tata says this, Faith is the ability to believe, isn't, isn't, is not the ability to believe long and far into the misty future, It's simply taking God at his word and taking the next step. Many times even mature Christians can act as if we're practical atheists. We're good as long as the world bows to our desires. But as soon as things get out of kilter, we go off the rails. It might be something as simple as a busy schedule. Or it could even be a sick child. Or someone who resists us and doesn't go along with our every whim. Even when we think we're right, we may be wrong, right? Or it could be that someone doesn't live up to our expectations. Maybe it's a lost job or a loss of prestige or a loss of money. Instead of rejoicing in our sovereign God who sends these difficulties for our good and His glory, we start complaining. And we boast of how, or that is, we boast of how we're going to extricate ourselves from our difficulties. 
We make our own plans and we go do our own thing. We make our plans without regard for what God wants us to do. We don't seek his will in prayer. We're not open to his leading when he makes clear what we should do. Instead of humbly submitting to his will, we boast of our own solutions. James says, look at the text. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James blasts these people for their excessive confidence in their own cleverness or skill. This confidence is completely unfolded, or unfounded, that is, especially considering that they've forgotten that loving one's neighbor is the nature of true religion. Again, we can't forget the context of this passage. These people are desiring to run off to some other city to accumulate wealth for their own purposes. And they have no real desire to help their brethren. Instead of loving God, their creator, with all their hearts, with all their souls, with all their minds, they loved themselves, and they certainly were not loving their neighbors. That's why I say that ultimately this is, this is why the royal law, loving your neighbor as yourself, is the underpinning of what he's saying. Beloved, they knew better. Yet they were persisting in their wickedness. Notice James says, as it is. The, the New King James Version tra- translates this, but now, which parallels, parallels the statement in, in verse 13. These folks were sinning and in need of repentance. They were double-minded. And as I mentioned last week and even today, they had one foot in the world and one in the church. I fear that some of you here today may be in the same position. You are what we might call nominal Christians, which might not be a Christian at all. You act as like these so-called believers, if you act, that is, if you act as these so-called believers, you can't have assurance of salvation. just can't. I'm not talking about you who are struggling. I'm not talking about you who may slip now and again. I'm talking about a willful ignorance, or arrogance that is, that says I will live the way I want to live. I will do what I want to do. You live as though you are the captain of your own soul, even as you step foot in the church, even as you put a front on in the church. Beloved, I don't know your heart. I don't know where you, where you stand. But if you're in that position, I beg you consider the eternal consequences. I beg you to. I, I beg you to consider your sovereign creator and serve him with all your heart. Serve him with everything that you have. Well, let's look at the third maxim that James offers. You must live considering your doctrinal knowledge. You must live considering your doctrinal knowledge. James says this. Look at the text. Verse 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So James is now indicting them for knowing the truth and not doing it. Now, it's hard to be certain if he's saying that he's giving him that truth, therefore now they're accountable to it, or if they already knew the truth and are in violation of what they know, maybe it's both. Maybe he's reiterating what they know and expanding on it. Expanding on it. Either way, doesn't matter. Either way, they are in a state of knowing the truth. And they can't explain away this knowledge. They will be held accountable by the righteous judge. And James has already warned them, we've talked about this already, that the judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. They have no excuse. They will be held accountable. Beloved, you will be held accountable for what you know. Don't come to church and hear the truth without acting on it. Don't come to church... And hear the truth without acting on it. It's willful, willful arrogance. It's boastful. And God will judge. He's a righteous judge. 
Now, we've explored the context of this passage, but I want, to, I want you to see one more thing, which I think will make James's intent even more clear. In James 3.13, he says this, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. In 4.17, he said this, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Now, I want to press this home to you. Where do you think that James has learned this wisdom? Now, we've seen Jesus' influence on, on James's teaching. Now, I want to show you another great influence. We, we, you've heard that, I mean, you may have heard that James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. Now, I, I understand where they're coming from because of this, but I want to make sure sometimes when people say that, they say it's because it's, they, they, see, they see James as these loose sayings that don't, are not really uh, con- tied together. That's not what I see in James. I see, I see great uh, uh, connectedness in what James is saying. If you understand what James and why he's writing what he's writing, then you, you begin to see all these connections in there, and it's, it's hard to even keep up with it all. So it's not these loosely connected sayings. But there is a sense that this is true, that it is the Proverbs of the New Testament, because James is heavily influenced by the Proverbs. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 1, I want you to, I want you to see this. Chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and, and ornaments about your neck. So what we're hearing here is that what we're listening in on is a father's teaching his son about wisdom. And we know from verse 1 that this is King Solomon. Now, now skip over to, to Proverbs 3. I want, to, I want you to see this. I want, you to, I want to read through this, and I want to point out the echoes to what James is saying. I want to show you that James is teaching his people how to live in a wise and understanding way. In, in other words, he's giving them doctrine to live by. It says this in chapter 3, verse 1. My, my son, do not forget my teaching. But let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. So, that, so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Now I want to stop there. I want to, I want to say that this is the, the foundation of a life of wisdom. Uh, the, the man or woman who lives according to kindness and truth will have a good reputation before in the sight of God and man. This connects to James' statement in chapter 1, verse 27. He says this, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. Notice, in the sight of our God and Father. Before our God and Father. That this is, this is pure and undefiled religion. It's this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. What is that? It's, it's being kind. It's living according to kindness and truth. And, and when you do so, you will find favor and good repute before God. Amen, right? Proverbs goes on in verse 5 to say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Remember, James says this, we said, it, we said it earlier. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior and in, in the de- in his deeds in the, his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. You see, he went on to describe wisdom that is from below versus the wisdom that is from above. That's what James did. Here, Solomon urges his son not to lean on his under, own understanding, which is wisdom from below, but in all his ways acknowledge the Lord. And he will make your path straight. In other words, acknowledge him and he will guide you in all truth. This is wisdom that is from above. 
Proverbs 3, 7, Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Again, we hear the echoes of James, right? He has warned them against the, this wisdom that is from below, which is earthly and demonic and, and natural. In James 3.16, he says that where this type of wisdom, this, this demonic wisdom exists, there is disorder in every evil thing. Proverbs 3.8, it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Verse 9, 9 listen to this. Honor, your, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Again, you should hear the echoes from Proverbs to Jesus to James. James wants his readers to understand the nature of of riches and the danger that they present. Verse 11, my son, Proverbs 3.11, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as the father corrects the son in whom he delights. You see, some of those who James is reproving, some of them are true believers. They, they truly believe in Christ. And so he's reproving them. He's correcting them because he knows that, because he knows that the Lord loves them. <coughs> it's again why it's important for us to understand who he's talking to. It's why it's important for us to understand that these people are on the fence that, he's ta- that James is talking to because they're, they're ones that could fall either way. They could fall out of, the, out of Christ or they could fall into Christ, if you will, from, a, from an earthly perspective, that is. Proverbs 3.13 goes on to say, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain is better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Again, we should hear James in these words. True wisdom will produce true riches. That doesn't mean necessarily riches on this earth, right? Our Lord, the richest man ever to live. Not really, right? Not by the world standards, but by heavenly standards, the richest man ever to live. He owns everything. Here's what he said in Luke 9, 58. The foxes have holes. And the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That, that verse gets me. I'm, I, I have more in this world than my Lord did. Proverbs 3.17. Actually drop down real quick to Proverbs 3.27. Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not devise harm against your neighbor when he lives securely beside you. So we made a connection to these verses last week, but I think that James has these, these verses in mind as he considers the, his reader's situation. He urges him to live according to God's wisdom. And earthly wisdom says to go here and there and to make money. Earthly wisdom says to fill your own coffers and to pad your own bank account. But God says to use your wealth to help your neighbor. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. Augustus Toplady says this. He's a hymn writer. Since much wealth too often proves a snare and an encumbrance in the Christian's race... Let him lighten the weight by dispersing abroad and giving to the poor, whereby he will both soften the pilgrimage of his fellow travelers and speed his, way, his own way faster. End quote. Let me, let me add this quickly. I believe we've fallen for a lie. We believe that the earth is a closed system. Therefore, we must hoard our resources to ensure we have enough for tomorrow. But James challenges this. We, when we live by faith and in friendship with God, we come to see that this world is an open system created by God and sustained by Him at every moment. Just think of the feeding of the multitude, right? Where did the fish and the bread come from? The world is infinitely rich in resources. It provided by God for us to exist and to prosper. 
Now, I'm not preaching socialism. Actually, it's the complete opposite. I'm saying there's enough to go around. I'm preaching that we should, this should be abundantly clear to us. God has provided everything that we need so we can share with those who have need. It's that, it's that easy, right? Just a cursory reading of Genesis 1 shows that God has provided in abundance. You know, you got these, uh, this is, yeah, we got these guys, you know, Bill Gates and, and others. Bill Gates comes to mind, who's a billionaire, right? And he's trying to give away all his money. He's trying to give it away. You know, it's funny that he has come to that conclusion that he needs to give that all away. I mean, it's, he has so much. I mean, the, the top 1% in this world have many times more than the bottom 99%. I mean, it's just crazy. It's because, of, because the, issue is not, the issue is not the ability for the earth to give what we need. The issue is that some people keep it and hoard it. That's the problem. At the heart of the teaching that there's a lack of resources is a desire to control those resources. Did you get that? At the heart of the teaching that there's a lack of resources is a desire to control them. I'm all for good stewardship. But we don't have to hoard what God has provided. There's plenty for everyone. Just read, I don't have time, just read Exodus 16. When God sent the manna, right? He sent what they needed. And when they didn't use what they needed, it was worms came and, and ate it up, right? It bred worms and became foul. God provides what we need, and if we hoard what he gives, he will not be pleased. John Calvin says this, If we believe heaven to be our country, it is better for us to transmit our wealth thither than to retain it here, where we may lose it by sudden removal. Now you may be asking yourself, what's this have to do with verse 17? Clearly James has taught them the right thing to do. He has taught them how to live by wisdom and understanding. And they are in sin if they don't do it. Beloved, you are in sin if you don't do it. So this verse then forms a great transition to our next section, which we'll see next week, where James says, Come now, you rich Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. You see the connection now. You see the connection of what James is saying and how James is, is teaching them. These verses then would make no sense they would just hang on their own if we didn't understand. He has warned the fence riders, we, we've called them. He has warned them about their behavior and how continuing in it shows that they have a dead faith. And next time we'll see that he goes on to call out the truly rich. The, uh, the wicked unbelievers who have not bowed their knee to Christ and are oppressing the suffering brethren. Well, we've seen these three maxims. We've seen that you should live, you must live considering your eternal destination. We have seen that you must live considering your sovereign creator. We've seen also that you must live considering your doctrinal knowledge. Beloved, you know the right thing to do. You know to follow wisdom that is from above. You know that faith that has, is without works is a dead faith. You know that you can't live out your Christian faith in a vacuum. Your actions or your lack of actions have a real consequence in this world. But they have an even greater consequence in the world to come. According to James, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Beloved, many of you are believers in Christ. And I praise the Lord for you. You have a true faith. I urge you to go and live according to that faith. Live your life uh, for, for the Lord. Don't worry about tomorrow. Live for Christ today. Give your life to Him and for the brethren. Live by faith and not by sight. There's some of you here that don't know Him. You don't know Him. I appeal to you. Every week I appeal to you. Look to Him. Believe in Him. He went, he went to the cross and died for man's sin. 
He tasted the wrath of the Father so that you might not have to taste it. He suffered and died in in your place as a substitute for you if only you would believe. He was resurrected from the dead. And He sits at the right hand of the Father even today. He intercedes for those who are His. He intercedes for you if only you would believe. He will take your guilt. He will take it upon Himself. You can be truly forgiven no matter matter what you've done. No matter how vile you feel. No matter how vile you feel. No matter how guilty you feel before Him. He can truly save you. He will save you. Just call out to Him. Trust in what He has done on your behalf. Turn to Him and you will find mercy and grace at the cross. Find mercy and grace there. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this this morning again. Lord, I pray for those who are here that know you. I praise you for them. I see them as they they serve you, as they serve others. And I praise the Lord for them. I praise you for them. Father, I pray for those who don't know you today, who haven't bowed the knee to you, who haven't turned to you, turning from their sinful ways to trust in you. Father, I pray for them. I pray that you would save them. I pray that you would convict their hearts, that they may look upon their sin with horror and turn from it and walk in your way, walk in heavenly wisdom. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. Father, may we live according to it. May we live a life that is thankful for your grace. Because we know that for by grace we are saved through faith. Not not of ourselves. We didn't have anything to do with it. Father, you have saved us for your own good pleasure. We thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen.